Well, good evening. Well, that's an amazing chapter and is just a continuation of what we started about two weeks ago. And uh, that was chapter three. We talked about the end of the world and how to make sure that if you are really preoccupied right now in 2020 with the end of the world, then you should spend more time on preparing yourself to meet Jesus instead of researching all these crazy conspiracy theories about how the world's going to end tomorrow. Um, we talked about that. Today we're going to spend, obviously, in chapter 4. And if you know anything about running, or if you have ever done any running in school, I grew up and we ran, you know, certain, like, we, we called them, well, obviously we ran kilometers in Europe, not miles. So we had, like, three and then five. And then I came here, but I never, in my life, until I was 15, I never ran a relay race. You know where you pass the baton? Where there's like three or four, usually it's four people, I think. And you hand the baton to that person and then they run a specific amount of, of time or a distance rather. And then they pass it on to somebody else, right? So I remember when I came here, I, I went to this uh, school called Clover Park in, in Lakewood. And they're like, okay, well, you're gonna run. I'm like, okay, I know how to run. Like, well, I was pretty bad at it, but regardless, I knew how to run. And I remember, they put me like in these spaces with four other people and because of the misunderstanding i didn't really speak english very well i had no idea what i was doing right so i start to see this guy run towards me and i'm like is he gonna tackle me because i did not get the instructions exactly how so this guy starts to kind of come close to me and then my teacher goes go you gotta run and i'm just so confused and i'm like what am I? And it's like, well, no, grab, grab, grab the baton. And I'm like, what am I supposed to do? So I finally grabbed the thing, right? And I started running with it. And as I'm running with it, this other guy starts running alongside me. For whatever reason, you'd think I would normally kind of be able to catch on and say, okay, well, I got to pass it on to the other person. But I did not. I was just like, I got this. Why is this guy running? You know? And I'm like, it's not that heavy to carry, you know? Like, <laughs> and then I realized that you're only supposed to run a specific amount of time with the baton. You, and, 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 and technique on how you sort of give the baton is very important to give it in the right time and not slow down, you know, the person that you're going to give it to. And so all of this stuff was really foreign to me until I ran it and I realized how horrible I was at it. But the reason I'm telling you that story is because a lot of times I think when it comes to our Christian living, we think that it's a marathon that we run by ourselves. But the truth of the matter is you were not born on an island by yourself and you decided, I'm just going to follow Jesus. First of all, no, you didn't just wake up one day on an island by yourself. No, you had parents that, you know, gave you birth, right? Like, you had parents that instilled certain values and philosophies and theology in your life, right? You had mentors that came alongside you. You had friends that were godly, and they told you about Jesus, and they started to disciple you, right? You had people that were older. Maybe it was a grandpa or a grandma who was godly. And at the beginning, like, I remember I was probably eight or nine years old and my dad was this fiery preacher he was a layman but at the same time he's also you know he would also get these these awesome opportunities to preach and my dad was just like preaching i remember sitting on the pew and i would attend like three services in a row you know because i was very christian um <laughs> and i would sit on the pew and just listen to him and i my dad always has been this vigorous person where he never 
spend any day in the hospital or anything like that. Right? And I was really inspired by that. But as as time went on, I started to see the the you know the lines on the forehead developing. And I, I went from being a kid watching my dad, you know, preparing the shower for me or, you know, and seeing him, you know, in all his youthful glory, if you could call it that. And then slowly started to see my dad, you know, get wrinkles and get white hair and started to become weaker and weaker. To the last two years of his life, he couldn't do much for himself. So we had to spend time, you know, do things for him because he couldn't, you know, he, he was very, you know, uh, he was going through a disease and it was just a really complicated situation. But it wasn't just my dad. It was a lot of people in my life that I saw the vigor and the passion they pursued after Jesus. Now, my dad had also problems. But the awesome thing happens when you see this person and their vigor, and then you started to see them decline and decline. And by the end of, you know, his life, he started to lose a lot of his memory and he wouldn't recognize people. And it was a sad picture to just be part of it and to see. But you see, my dad fulfilled a role in this, you know, spiritual race, if you could call it that. He was my grandma who passed on the baton to my dad, which passed it to me. And I'm hoping that I continue that and pass it to somebody else. We are not necessarily running a marathon on our own here in, 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 in our spiritual lives. No, it's more of a relay, right? Like, and how you, for, for you to actually be able to pass a baton, you have to first get a baton, right? You have to sort of be able to at least make one or develop one. But most of the time, unless you're born in a vacuum, you have somebody that passed it on to you. And how faithful are we going to pass it on to somebody else? And that's what's happening here in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Apostle Paul was someone who used to persecute Christians. He was, by all stands, standards of, the, of today, a murderer. He would go and just drag Christians out of the houses and he would kill them. I mean, we see that the Stephen was, was literally, uh, you know, uh, they, they, they um, what's the word I'm looking for? They, they murdered him with throwing rocks at him. Stoned to death. There you go. Thank, that's the word I was looking for. And, and we see Apostle Paul being part of that stoning. And God encounters, well, he encounters God, rather. And because of that encounter, everything changes. And now Apostle Paul becomes this very passionate young man to follow Jesus and proclaim the gospel at all costs. He is before, you know, emperors. He's before all these authorities, and he's preaching the gospel with a vigor. And now he's coming, a lot of theologians say that 2 Timothy is his last book, and he is discipling this younger, you know, uh, minister called Timothy. And he's passing, if you could call it that, the baton, the, you know, the, the flame of fire, right? Like, onto his disciple called Timothy. So, what would you say to people that you've been discipling if you, knew, if you knew that you were about to die soon? Now, we know that he was very aware that it's just days or maybe weeks for him until he dies. Maybe it could have been longer. What would you say to your protege, 
or to your disciple? What would you encourage? Because you see, your last words, they're very important. I actually went and did a search today, and I was like, okay, famous last words. And it's like, I encourage you to, to do that for yourselves. But like, you see all these famous people and the last things they, they said, you know, before, the, before they died. But usually, you know, I don't mean to get into politics here, but you guys know that Justice Ginsburg um, uh, passed away. And a lot of the talk was that her last words is that nobody would replace her. And I was like, I know what they mean, but I can't believe that. I can't believe that that person's last wish was a political one. Like, I, I cannot believe that. Now, of course, again, people can have their own opinions. That's just my opinion. People on their deathbed realize what's really, really important to them. Right? People on their deathbed, they don't say, oh, send me my degrees. I want to take a look at them one more time. No, they want their loved ones to be around. They want to instruct their loved ones about what was important to them in their lives. And they're also facing the prospect where, what, what, what now? Right, so what, Timothy, what Paul is writing to Timothy has a lot of weight because it's Paul's last words here. And this is how he starts. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. What an introduction. What, what does it mean to charge someone? Well, you know that the president of the United States has powers that he can discharge, right? Like, uh, think of it this way. When an uh, officer gives a command, he charges someone lower and lower rank with a task. And then that person has to discharge that task. And Apostle Paul looks to Timothy and says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. So what he's saying here is, Timothy, I am telling you this, and I'm telling you this, not just me and you, but God is our witness. That if you don't discharge what I'm charging you to do, you will have to answer before God who will judge the living and the dead. I mean, if that doesn't give you goosebumps, right? It's not just a conversation between me and Paul. Imagine me coming to Paul and says, Paul, listen, your calling in your life, it's not just me calling that out. This is between me and you. But yes, what's even more important, Paul, this is in front of God. And if you fail to discharge what I'm charging you with, if you fail to do this, you will have to answer before him. I mean, that's, what an introduction. When God is calling you, it's not just your youth pastor or pastor saying, hey, could you close worship today? God is calling you to that. We just sort of agree with God with what God has already called you to do. But if you fail to follow this through, I always say to our leaders, uh, sometimes when uh, they lie to me, uh, or, uh, you know, not that anybody does. It's a different church I was part of. Um, <laughs> Are you lying? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good one. No, but you know how you can tell a white lie? Hey, why aren't you there? 
Oh, because I was busy. Were you though? Were you really were you really busy though? Because you're not you're not just saying that to me. This is in front of God. Those are serious things, guys. If you fail to follow through, if Jesus is the Lord of your life and you fail to follow through, you haven't failed me necessarily. You're going to have to give an account in front of Jesus who will judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. Of course, Jesus didn't come to judge the first time. But you will give an account. Have you heard of the, the parable of the town talents? Right? There will be a reckoning. We will have to give an account for how obedient we were in our calling to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And those things should strike the fear of God in us. But we have so haphazardly just approached this, like, oh, God, it depends how I feel today. Like, that's kind of how we approached it. But these are serious things. I charge you in the presence of God. Lord Jesus, I'm in the first verse. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. And look, look what the charge is, or what the calling is, or what he tells him to do. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure uh, suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Does he say, uh, does he say you should, I don't know, be nice to people? Of course, that's important. Does he say, oh, you should attend this specific meeting? No, the charge is preach the word. Does he say entertain people? No. Does he say make people feel good? No. <laughs> Does he say, oh, just inspire people? You know, like our generation is all about, you know, what do you want to do in life? I just, you know, I just want to inspire people. You know, like I want to create content that just inspires people. Is that the charge? No, he says preach the word. Does it say, Slavic, you should tell everyone your stories because they're so important? No, it says preach the word. Why preach the word? Because it's the word of God who changes lives. Not my philosophy or my political views. Right? Preach the word. And he goes on to say, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Those are three things that we just don't like to do, period. When was the last time you got rebuked and you're like, I just love it, you know? I just, that's exactly what I needed. No, you usually go like, wait, but in my defense, like, I want to say, like, you automatically start to defend yourself, right? You automatically say, well, that's not exactly what happened, right? Because nobody likes to be reproved, rebuke, rebuked or warned of things to come, like exhorting with complete patience and teaching. And of course, this has to be done with patience and teaching. Our charge is not to go and start going off of people. No, we have to do with, with you know, you know and, uh, and Peter talks about how we got to do with gentleness and respect, tell the truth with gentleness and respect. Here talks about how we should do it in patience and in teaching. 
And then here's the, the warning that we're given. And I think this is so timely for today. For the time is coming when people will not endure a sound teaching, but having itching ears, not like actual physical itching ears, right? Like I'm talking about people, they just want to hear a specific, they'll attend a specific church just because they agree with the whole message. Because that message is, is funny enough, it's, it's, it's motivational enough, it's just, I just like the pastor, and I like the community there. So, so when we talk about having false pastors or false uh, preachers, this is not like, oh, poor people, they have false teachers. No, that's God's judgment on the people that have sought for themselves. People that will tickle their ears instead of actually convict them with the, with the word. And that's serious. Like, if you just go to church because that's just how you, like, it's just, it just feels right. And if, it, if you go to church and you're not convicted, if you go to church and you walk in, the Holy Spirit is not convicting of a sin that you know it's ongoing, then you should really wonder, are you really hearing the gospel or not? Because the gospel will get to the heart of the issue. And you will show you like a mirror, you're truly, I mean, you're, you're the state of your spiritual being. It says, for the times is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So they chose their own teachers. So just because teachers have massive crowds, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily preaching the truth. No, it's just normally when you have a massive crowd, you should really wonder, is this, is this really biblical or not? Because you see, people left Jesus. There's plenty of times where people would say, that's just too hard for me to, to even think about. There's actually a, a place where Jesus looks to his disciples and says, Peter, you want to go? Go. But we've made it in our mind is that the more people we, we, we see in the ministry, suppose the more successful it is. Now, of course, numbers are important because every single number is a soul. And we should care about people. And we count our tractors, and we count our money, and we count our computers, and we count our cameras. Why? Because they're important to us. We should be able to also take account of all of our friends and care about every single friend. It's just like you care about your most expensive things because we're dealing not with selling tractors here. We're dealing with people who are eternal. And that should make things serious for us. The way you get excited and serious about studying for being a dentist or a, a surgeon, you should also study and show yourself approved as a God's workman to disciple others and be discipled. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. This, when he talks about sober-minded, is not talking about alcohol. Of course, that is part of, you know, the, the thing. But, you know, Apostle Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, you can have some wine because of your frequent stomach problems. So obviously, that's not the, oh, you know, but... When he's talking about sober-minded, uh, sober he's talking about don't go with the latest trend. Don't allow anything to influence you that is not, you know, scripturally backed, right? Like where don't go with the latest feeling 
the latest trend, the latest movement. Don't go, you know, there's people that get high just so they would see a vision of God. No, you need to have your mind fully functioning. And with the point of when it comes to alcohol, one of the reasons I don't drink is because I make a lot of stupid mistakes by being sober. And I don't need to get drunk. Right? So, so I know how hard it is to have a pure mind and I'm sober the whole time. I know how hard it is to be in the Word and I'm sober the whole time. Right? So I don't need to add anything to this. Be sober-minded. Don't go with what's popular, with what's in culture, with what's funny. No, go with the te time-tested truth of the Word of God. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Endure suffering. So, so does that mean that like you're not you're gonna have you know your greatest life? No. He automatically tells them you will encounter the suffering. You will suffer. And his answer to that is just endure it. <laughs> we run away from that. You know, somebody said the problem with the living sacrifices, they have a tendency to crawl off the altar, right? Like, <laughs> so it's like when we're told to bring our bodies as living sacrifices, well, it's really tough to do that because your feelings are running 20 different directions, right? Right, so, so endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. You have to put in the work. Well, but see, I'm not saved by, by works. Yeah, we know that. We know that Jesus saved you. But because you claim that God has changed your life, that should be seen in your life through how you work that out. Your works should be a result of a changed heart. But if you don't have the works, that means you should wonder, is there a changed heart? Do the work of evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And here's where he brings it back to him. And he's saying, Timothy, I'm not asking you to do something I'm not doing myself, what I haven't done myself. Because in verse 6, he's saying this, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. Remember when I told you that he knew that he's about to die? He says, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I want you to, this gives me goosebumps every single time I read this. I want you to really pay attention to this. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved for his appearing. What a, what a statement to go out with. For I have, uh, for I've, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. What a powerful, powerful statement to go out of this world with. You know what? I fought the good fight. You know, I have finished the race that was set before me. I have kept the faith. And he says, now I am ready to receive the crown set for me. And guess what? It's not just for me. It's for all who are looking forward, where I have seen, where I have encountered here, His appearance. Do you have a longing for Jesus? I think one of the things about getting older <laughs> um, 
is this, that you sort of mourn, you're no longer 16 or 18, and things start to hurt in weird places, you're like, I didn't know that could hurt, right? <laughs> like, but as you're mourning your youth, I notice how it's being replaced with this anticipation that I'm closer to seeing Jesus with every single year, right? So on one hand, it's like, okay, I'm mourning my youth because I'm no longer 16 or 18 or 20. But at the same time, I know that I'm one year closer to seeing my Lord and Savior. This anticipation that builds up, that I'm constantly looking for His appearance, to know that one day what I, what I craved and looked forward to and longed for my whole life is finally will come true. And that's the anticipation that he has, this longing. He says, I'm waiting for that righteous crown because I've done all these things. But guess what? This is not just for me though, guys. Timothy, this is also for you and everyone who is looking forward to his appearance. Verse 9, do your best to come soon. And here's where the heartbreak happens. Verse 10, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Demas was one of his disciples. And here you have one of the greatest saints that has ever lived, that has written two-thirds of the New Testament. I think most seminary students and people who preach the gospel and people that truly follow Jesus would give anything to spend some time in that jail cell with Paul. Wouldn't you? But Demas doesn't see the value. Why? Because he loved this world more. And it's such a sad picture for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted and gone to Thessalonica. What a, what a, what a, imagine like, <laughs> I hope he made it to heaven, I don't know. But imagine approaching on Demas. What happened, bro? Like, here you had one moment in history where you see Timothy and, and the things that he's done for the church, and you just, for what? For 50 minutes of fame in the world? You gave that up? And I think to us it sounds kind of dumb, doesn't it? You gave that up for what, Demas? But we do it all the time. In the modern day, we do this every day. If it's not convenient to declare Jesus, that you're a, uh, a follower of Jesus at work, you won't be talking about Jesus. If it's not convenient for you to serve a church or serve your community, you won't do it. But remember what I told you about this whole relay thing. You only have so much time, right? And it has to be done in the right time, in, in this window of opportunity that you have. Before this, you're not ready yet. The baton is not passed on to you. Jesus was 30 years old before he actually took on the baton. We don't know what... Well, I mean, we, we, we see some things that happen, but for the most part, we don't know what Jesus has done for 30 years before he started his ministry. God was preparing. Now, I'm not talking about age. I think there's people that are already 8 years old. Think of Josiah, became king at 8 years old. Or Joseph, maybe at 14, 15. I'm not talking about just age here. I'm talking about maturity. 
God is going to call you for a specific calling and there's going to be a time that you're not ready yet. The baton is not in your hand right now yet. And then you're going to have to make sure that you're ready on the moment that baton is handed over to you. And when you get that baton, you have to run with endurance, with everything in your mind, in your body, in your hands, in your feet that says go. And this is your time. This is your time and and moment in history, in our generation, for you to make a difference. And if you're missing this, and what I mean by that is there will come a time where you're going to have to pass the baton on to somebody else. Maybe because your life ended early. Maybe because you were incapacitated and now you cannot really function. And you might look back and say, well, I could have done this, but now the time closed for you. A lot of young people say things like, you know, I'm going to just go party and do whatever I want to do. And maybe when I turn 60 or 70, I'll go serve Jesus. Yeah, when your back hurts and you're on 24 different medications and you're dried up and nobody's listening to you because you're old. Especially in our generation, which I think that's one of the worst things of our, the worst sins of our generation, because we're shooting ourselves in the foot by not listening to people that have lived their life and they know what's up. Right? You have this space here, and a lot of us wake up thinking we have our whole eternity to change things around. But the truth of the matter is, you don't know if the next two minutes is guaranteed. You don't know if that's going to happen, what's going to happen next tomorrow and we sell ourselves on this thing they're like wait we have all this time like we can just do whatever you know no you don't be ready when God calls you and just as you have to be ready to take on the baton also you have to be ready to give out the baton you've seen those old people that like they're losing their mind but like I'm still the pastor of this church no listen this is a time for you to pass on the baton to somebody else Right? So you need to, to be ready to take on the baton and then be ready to give. But if you haven't done much here, you have no one to give it to because you haven't been discipling people. And it's a sad story. Do your best to come soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to uh, Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. And if verse 10 is a very depressing verse, here you have a disciple that just left Paul, left him alone, left him by himself. Here's where we have something very encouraging. In verse 11, it says, Luke alone is with me. And then goes, he says this, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in my ministry. Now, why is that so hopeful? You know why? Because Mark went on a trip with Paul way earlier, and he got cold feet. And he decided, hey, I don't want to do this mission trip anymore. And Paul said, never will I ever take you with me on the mission again. Barnabas, who is the son of encouragement, got Mark and said, hey, we're going on a trip with Paul. You want to come? Mark's like, yeah. And they show up, and Paul's like, wait, what is Mark doing here? And Barnabas is like, well, 
I thought it would be a good idea for Mark to come with us again. And it says that the argument got so intense that they split up. And Barnabas took Mark, and Paul took Silas, and they went their separate ways. So needless to say, Paul did not see Mark in a very favorable light because Mark deserted him, and he's like, I'm not, I'm not doing this again. And a lot of times, that's exactly how I feel as a pastor with a lot of you guys. I'm like, I ain't doing this anymore. I'm done. Thank you. <laughs> I just felt like I needed to rent and just bring that out. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> right, so you, you have these, these, but then you come to these verses where Paul says, get Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for my ministry. Somebody that failed him, and you think, okay, that's it. And Paul changes, seeing his faithfulness after, Paul changes his whole view on Mark. He says, you know what, bring him to me because he's useful to my ministry. That's encouraging for a lot of us. I'm just going to leave that hanging over there. Um, But in verse 12, he says, Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, Bring the cloak that I left you with uh, uh, Carpus as Troas, also the books, and above all, the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May not be charged against him. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So, so Apostle Paul is warning Timothy and says, look, I want to tell you this straight up. There will be people that will hate you. And the reason they hate you is not because you're not pretty enough, but because they hate the message that you're proclaiming. And he's bringing this specific person, Alexander the coppersmith. He says, he did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Now, if somebody goes against you and is trying to destroy you, what do you want to do? You want to go and defend yourself? And you want to go fight. But that's not what Apostle Paul does. He says, you know what? The Lord will, re- will repay him. The Lord will deal with the situation. Right? He says, re- uh, it, it, what he's saying to Timothy is don't take things in your own hands. Allow the Lord to deal with this whole situation. But he says, but at the same time, be aware of him. For he is strongly opposed our message. And here's another sad part of this whole thing, right? You think Apostle Paul, one of the greatest, greatest theologians and, uh, and philosophers, you think that somebody would come and stand by him when he's on trial. Look how sad this is. And my first defense, no one, no one, no one, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message may be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. 
the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What is Paul saying here? What he's saying is there's going to be times you're going to have to do this alone. There's going to be times you might be on trial and nobody will show up. So what encouraged Paul when he's on trial and he's by himself? You know what encouraged him? Is this? But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed to all Gentiles and all the Gentiles might hear. So I was rescued from lion's mouth. What he's saying is there's going to be times you're going to have to go alone, but rest assured when Jesus said that I'll never forsake you or leave you, he really means it. Because on that trial, he was there with me and he has rescued me from the lion's mouth, meaning from little death. That is the awesome thing about our Lord and Savior. Even when your friends stop doing ministry with you and they forsake you and they leave you alone and when people have disregarded you and people have not come to defend you, the Lord is going to be with you. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Anisiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left um, Trophimus who is ill, Amelitus, do your best to come before winter. Ebolus sends greetings to you, and as do, as do Pudens and Linus, Claudia, and all the bro brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. He says, come before winter, and I think this is a reference to winter is really harsh, especially where he was at. And he says, hey, bring me the, the parchments and the cloak and, and all of those things to keep warm, and I have something to read and write. But he's writing this. And a lot of times, I think, when we have this idea that God is calling us to ministry, we so overly romanticize it and we're like, oh, he's called me to be a great person. And I ask you to lead a small group and you're like, well, but I'm just not ready. A lot of times you're going to have to do things on your... So I try to... I tried to lead a small group and nobody showed up. Have a small group with yourself. It's not that hard. John went to the Patmos of uh, island of Patmos and he opened up a church called the Church of I John because he only had one member. It was him. <laughs> That's what Dave Wilkerson said, and I thought it was just so funny. <laughs> and uh, he says, "I John began to minister unto the Lord." How do you minister when it's just you in your own church? Well, you do. There's going to be times we you're not going to have your pastor or your friend to walk with you and hold your hand. But Jesus is going to be there. He will be present. He will rescue you. And He will accomplish the very work that He began in you. Because ultimately, it's not really you doing this in your strength. But it's what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. He has defeated the enemy. He has secured redemption for, for all people who are trusting him. And because of what he's done, we also have 
a chance to even live this life in freedom with boldness and to proclaim the gospel at whatever the cost that is. If it comes at the cost of our jobs, where our freedoms, I think it's worth it. So I'm going to ask you right now to just take this message in and say, Lord, where have I been like Demas? Where I've forsaken what you've called me to do just because something shiny came along. Lord, where have I failed to take on the baton that was handed to me by my pastors, by my elders, by my mentors, by my grandpa? Lord, where have I failed and can I pick it up and where I left off and start running with endurance this race that you said before me? Because I want to get to the ends of my life and say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. And now I'm looking forward to his appearing and I'm looking forward to spend eternity with him, with him in glory. Where are you on all this journey? And no pressure, but tomorrow is not guaranteed. So would you stand with me tonight? And I'm going I'm to call you up front. I'm going to ask you our worship team, team to come and sing that third song again. But would you spend some time in prayer? And then I'm going to have Paul. He's going to end service and we can have fellowship after that. But could you spend some time in prayer and just don't pay attention to anybody around you and say, God, where have I failed you? Where have I been like Demas? Lord, restore me back to where you called me to do. And at the same time, I ask you that you'd forgive me if I said anything that offended you. Please forgive me. But at the same time, understand that if the Holy Spirit is convicting you, that this is a good thing. He's not going to condemn you. But if He's convicting you, come back to the cross. Come back to Jesus. My whole purpose here is not to offend you. My whole purpose is to remind you that the Lord loves you. But we're going to have to have some hard conversations because what He has charged you with, you have to be faithful in discharging and walking out your calling. Thank you for listening to this podcast. My hope is that this message inspired you to live in light of eternity. Please make sure to subscribe and it would mean so much to me if you could rate and review this podcast. If you have an event you'd like me to speak at, I would love for you to reach out to me via my website. You can also support this ministry via Patreon or the website. Thank you again and God bless.